Father in heaven, we come to your throne of grace through Jesus Christ alone, and we, God, we tremble at your voice as we've just sang. As you have spoken here, your word, the words we've read, thank you for these promises and that your word is for us today. And so, God, would you speak? Would you show yourself today to us gathered here? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us wisdom and soft hearts to receive your word. God, we acknowledge that you are a great God from beginning to end. You have been God and you are God and you will be God. So speak today, God, to your people. This we pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. On May 30th, 2020, I held the hands of my beautiful bride-to-be, Emily Reimer, at the time, good Mennonite gal, as we made binding promises to one another in the covenant of marriage. Uh, Looking back, uh, I wish one of Emily's promises was to massage Josh's back every night, Uh, but... Nonetheless, we sealed those promises and those vows that we made to one another with our wedding rings. We said, I'll be your husband. You will be my wife. It was an unforgettable day, an unforgettable month of an even more unforgettable year. We had 10 or so people at our wedding. Exactly one year later, which I didn't know at the time, Uh, It was a Sunday morning, and we were talking with people after the service, and someone uh, from our church happily came up to me and Emily and said, Happy anniversary, guys. And I went, Happy anniversary, babe. (laughs) To which Emily responded, Yep, been waiting all morning. (laughs) Am I ever glad that one of those promises we made was for better or for worse? Uh, The beauty of a covenant. Uh, And if you've been with us for the past month or so, you know exactly what we've been going through in the book of Genesis here. It's all about God making these promises to a man named Abram, starting in chapter 12. And we see this covenant unfold in chapter 15, all the way to our chapter this morning, chapter 17, which is all about that same covenant that God made with Abram. So on your outline, you'll see that this will be a three-part sermon that tackles one, God's part, second, Abraham's part, and third, our part in this covenant. So starting with the first one, let's break it down. And the first big idea here is that God confirms his covenant. Okay, this has been unfolding, and here God confirms his covenant with Abram. And the first evidence we see here is God's timing. Look at verse one with me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. So right there, we hear Abram was 99. In the verse prior, if you look at chapter 16, verse 16, it ends by saying, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So this tells us that there's numerous years in the gap here, mathematicians, how, how much is it? 13, 13 years, right? 
And this is really important because of exactly what we've been told in the last few chapters. In chapter 15, God promises Abram his offspring through his very own son, verses 4 to 5 there, as well as land to possess, right? We see that all the way even from chapter 12. Yet in chapter 16, verse 1, we're told Sarai, Abram's wife, had still borne him no children, So they took matters into their own hands, as we talked about last week. Instead of waiting on God, Abram and Sarai did it with their own hands. So uh, while Ishmael, as a result of that, is technically Abram's son, God makes it clear here in chapter 17, verse 1, that Abram still has to wait on him to bring the promised son in his way, and in his time. 13 years. Think about how long that was for Abram to wait for this promise. But 13 years, nonetheless, Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram. When did we hear this last? Chapter 12, right? When Abram was 75 years old, the Lord appeared to him and made promises for nationhood and offspring and land. And this is all important because we don't see God speaking to Abram every day, right? It sounds like that when we kind of read through the chapters. But there's years in between here. And Abram would have just waited years in between to hear from God one time after another. So right here, right away, in these first few words here, we see God is confirming his covenant with Abram after reappearing in 23 years. And the second evidence here that we see is his name, God's name. When he says to Abram, I am God Almighty. Again, this is an important stop because in chapter 16, we hear about Hagar giving a name to the Lord. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6. You are a God of seeing. That's Hagar saying that. Here in chapter 17, God gives a divinely appointed name for himself. El Shaddai, you might have heard that term before. I am God Almighty. And what does that mean? Well, it's right there. Almighty, right? This emphasizes the power, the might of God. Specifically, how? In bringing about the promised son to Abram through his barren and childless wife at his age as well. And after a long time of waiting, and here God reappears, gives his powerful name, God is confirming his covenant. Here's a third evidence. After God's timing and God's name, he gives a command and he says, walk before me and be blameless. Again, we always want to look back. I hope these words already are ringing us back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, when it said, Noah was a righteous man. What's the word there? Blameless. Blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. But when we think of Noah and Abraham, there's some differences there, right? Here uh, in chapter 6, Noah 
righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Over the weeks and the past month or so, we've seen Abram's up and down walk, right, with God. Before, I've actually uh, just heralded Abram as a man of faith. Like, he, he just gave glory to God and his faith. And here we've seen that he's just a regular guy. But he had faith in God, yet he stumbled, just like anyone else would. Abram's walk hasn't been blameless. He hasn't been walking blamelessly. So why is God now giving a command to Abram that he can't follow? Well, look at the reason in verse 2. When God says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. In Genesis 15, uh, you might remember we talked about how God, uh, the Lord, made, or or that word cut, uh, a covenant with Abram, and how he passed between the cut-up animals himself alone to signify what would happen if either party broke the covenant. And God knew in that moment that Abram could not walk blamelessly, which is why he walked himself alone right, between those animal pieces to take the curse upon himself when, not if, but when Abram breaks the covenant. Because God is and will be a faithful covenant partner, but Abram couldn't. Abram can't. He can't be faithful and return. In fact, the word make here in verse 2, it's actually the clearest evidence of God confirming his covenant because it's a different word from cut in Genesis 15, 18, but it actually just means to reaffirm, right? So God confirms his covenant. Scholars Gentry and Wellam suggest that this verse could be read this way. Walk before me and be blameless so that I can set, so that I may, sorry, set in motion Reaffirm, confirm my covenant between me and you. So the emphasis here is God confirming that covenant with Abram that he initiated, that he cut in Genesis 15. Yet notice how it ends with the words, multiply you greatly. That I may make my covenant between me and you, Abram, and may multiply you greatly. We've already seen parallel language with Noah, and here we see some more parallels. Back in chapter 9, what did God say to Noah? Be fruitful, multiply, and increase greatly on the earth. Chapter 9, verse 7. Who else did God say these words to? Even going back further, Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion. What's the connection here? The command to Adam in chapter 1 and the command is passed down to Noah in chapter 9. But here, for Abram, it becomes a promise. It's a very important observation here in chapter 17. And as soon as Abram heard these powerful words from this Almighty God, he fell on his face. Which is an appropriate response to the Lord God Almighty who has just spoken 
after a long time, who has just revealed his name that makes a powerful statement and this powerful command to walk before him and be blameless. This is why we sung together in worship here this morning about how God is faithful from beginning to end. Right? This is what Abram falls on his face for. He recognizes God who is powerful and faithful even when he himself, Abram, wasn't. So we've seen God's timing, God's name, God's command. Here's the fourth evidence that confirms God's covenant with Abram. It's a big name change. Verse three, partway through, God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Again, notice how God reassures, reaffirms, and confirms to Abram in verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you. After all these years, God comes in, God names himself, gives a command, and then changes Abram's name, which meant exalted father, right? We, we talked about that in the weeks prior. Abram from exalted father to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, father of many, father of crowds, but same essential meaning. It's Abraham, father of a multitude. And here, uh, before we get into this, allow me a side note that emphasizes the authority of God Almighty through this name change. Think back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam changed his wife's name after God pronounces the curse on the serpent, on the woman and the man. Uh, and Adam, in verse 20 of chapter 3, changes his wife's name to Eve after originally deciding that she shall be called woman, right? In chapter 2, before mankind sinned. And that was because God has given Adam, in chapter 2, even before the woman came, God gave Adam the animals to see what he would name them. And whatever the man named them, that was its name. Right? So there's this God-given authority here, and this has many implications for the roles of men and women in the home and church today, which we won't get into. But here in Genesis 17, God Almighty demonstrates full authority by confirming his covenant with Abram from Genesis 12 to make him from an exalted father of a great nation, singular, and making this big name change. I had to write that word big in there because this is exactly what it's doing. It's a name change that makes this promise much bigger from a father of one nation to a father of a multitude of nations plural. And this is the emphasis uh, in chapter 17 because, again, this covenant has been unfolding. We've seen these promises. It was already set in motion. And God told Abram, all families of the earth will be blessed in Abram. And even if Ishmael was the wrong offspring in chapter 16, he is still Abram's offspring through Hagar. So even here, if you look in chapter 16, verse 10, 
The angel of the Lord says to Hagar and promises Hagar, he, Ishmael, will surely, uh, sorry, uh, angel of the Lord will surely multiply her offspring, Ishmael, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So it's already in play. And notice the decisive language in chapter 17, verse 5 here. For I have made you. Okay, it's, a, it's already a done deal. It's just not yet fully complete. And this is implied in verse 6. This, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And the word exceedingly there is actually what separates the command to Adam and Noah back then to be fruitful and multiply. And here, the promise to Abraham about his offspring. Sorry, Abraham now. About his offspring. Becoming a multitude of nations and kings ruling over these multitudes of nations. So this is a big name change with big promises that was given by an even bigger God. So we just sang today as well. How great is our God. The God Almighty And it's only going to get bigger here as we move down the road with our next observation. God confirms his covenant with Abraham through an everlasting relationship. That's our fifth evidence here. Verse 7. Now I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. If you read these two verses, you'll notice uh, the emphasis is on this word everlasting. And this everlasting language isn't necessarily new because in chapter 13, specifically verse 15, God uh, tells Abram, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Right, so it's, it's not new, yet we see the word everlasting used here. And again, God is simply confirming his covenant with Abram by establishing it as an everlasting, forever covenant with an everlasting possession. And what makes this a big deal is that God now establishes this everlasting covenant relationship. Listen to this, not just with Abram, but with Abram and his offspring. Up to this point, God has made binding promises with Abram, between him and Abram alone as his covenant partner because of their covenant relationship. Now, for the first time, God extends this, makes it bigger, right? This everlasting covenant relationship with Abram and his offspring after him. Verses 7 to 8. And with this in mind, Let's reread these words from God to Abram. From verse 7, 
God says this, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, there's the extension, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, Abram, and to them. And I will give to you and to them the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Those are such strong covenantal words here, which is why I couldn't help but title this sermon. Uh, There's no other title uh, that, that, that was good enough. I will be their God. This is the heart of this covenant, is that God's desire is to be in an everlasting covenant relationship with his covenant people so that he will be their God. This is what makes this a bigger covenant. This is what makes it an everlasting covenant. These promises will be in place down the line, even after Abraham's death, through his descendants. And that's how God confirms his covenant through Abraham, through his timing, through his name, his command. The big name change with Abram to Abraham and his everlasting relationship with his people, with Abram's offspring that he's established. So here's the big section uh, that we're coming to next is Abraham's part. This is the next half of our passage here when, uh, in, in verse 9. And now this covenant relationship, keep in mind, it includes Abraham's offspring now. Right, So uh, what is Abraham's part in this? And first, we see it's the keeping of the covenant. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. Throughout Abraham and his offspring's generations, they are to keep this everlasting covenant. And again, in the heart of this covenant, um, it is God's desire to be God to his people. Yet in the heart of this command to keep my covenant is actually found in verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. But we've already talked about how Abraham's part of the covenant is to keep it and be blameless, but he, he couldn't do that. His walk has been far from blameless So how can, if Abraham can't do it, how can his offspring after him keep the covenant by walking blamelessly before God themselves? Well, by extending the covenant relationship with Abraham to his offspring, God knew that both Abraham and his offspring could never walk blamelessly, which again is why God walked alone between those cut up animal pieces in Genesis 15. He took the curse upon himself when, again, not if, but when Abraham and his offspring after him throughout their generations when they failed to keep the covenant. But regardless, God doesn't lower the standard for Abraham and his offspring. He still gives them this command, a specific way to walk blamelessly and keep his covenant in verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. 
Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, before we inject our own thoughts into this, we need to know that this is the first time that the word circumcise appears in Scripture. And many Bible scholars affirm that circumcision wasn't new at this point. Rather, it was an old tradition practiced in the ancient Near East, in the nations around Israel, specifically in Egypt, where Hagar was from. But regardless, God commands Abraham and his male offspring to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, which is our second observation here in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Much like chapter 9, when God made the bow in the clouds as a sign of his covenant with Noah, God commands Abraham and his offspring as covenant partners to seal the covenant through this sign, which is circumcision. Now this begs a question, and I was asking this question as I was thinking about this this week. Why did God pick circumcision as a sign of the covenant? Especially when many people have said, well, this isn't new. This isn't an old tradition uh, outside even of Israel. It's not a Hebrew Invention. Well, we're not clearly told why. However, th- there's three suggestions uh, that um, I-, I want to give for us this morning to, to uh, just to attempt to explain why, based on some clues in the text here with us. First, uh, the first suggestion is that the most basic explanation is found in verse 11. Okay, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Since God made this everlasting covenant between his covenant partners, Abraham and his offspring, it logically follows for the sign of that covenant to be symbolized on a male's reproductive organ. That's the most basic uh, explanation there. Second, this covenant-keeping act is connected to the original command in verse 1 to walk before God and be blameless. Throughout Scripture, circumcision is usually tied to the idea of being set apart physically and spiritually, but physically nonetheless. Exodus 12, 48, you can see that for yourselves. Joshua 5, when he circumcises uh, the, the nation of Israel after they cross the river, but being circumcised is, is a physical and a literal sign of walking before God blamelessly in keeping with his covenant. That's uh, a second suggestion there, but it still begs the question, which I've personally been asked multiple times this week and before, how is circumcision an outward visible sign if it's not publicly seen Well, here's my third suggestion as to why that is. Um, That is a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring. And I just said it there. It's a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring. That is the offspring being circumcised at the time. God knew they weren't just going to walk around naked and not ashamed like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, right, in Genesis 2. And since God clothed mankind after they sinned. So the parties present in the signing of the covenant through circumcision 
are the partners of the covenant sign in the same way that we baptize believers, adult believers today, in front of God and a gathered body of believers as partners of that covenant sign. And keep in mind the cultural uh, background as well of Israel isn't the same as we think of covered today. Yet, in all of this, how does Abraham keep this covenant with his offspring? Verse 12 God continues to give directions. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Now it's debated as to why babies are circumcised at eight days old, but what's clear here is that God requires every male as we've read here, born in Abraham's house or bought with his money to receive the sign of circumcision. Notice how this covenant keeps getting bigger. We've already talked about that aspect. Slaves bought from a foreigner are included in the sign. And this confirms that Abraham will indeed be the father of a multitude of nations, not just a nation, comes from himself, in his physical offspring, but the rest of the nations, multitude of nations, clearly evidenced by Ishmael as Abram's offspring through an Egyptian woman. But wasn't this covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring only? How is this now including foreigners? Well, that's exactly what it is. God knew that this covenant would include Abraham's national offspring, born in your house, as he says here, and his international offspring, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, essentially. This is why God can say in verse 12, uh, sorry, in verse uh, 13, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Even when Abraham and his offspring die, this covenant will still be in place for the offspring that remain, for them to keep the covenant. And if this wasn't the case, if they don't keep the covenant to walk and be blameless and have this sign of the covenant, they'll be guilty of our third and final observation here, the breaking of the covenant. Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Since God has commanded Abraham and his offspring to keep this covenant through circumcision, now then the uncircumcised male is counted as a disobedient offspring that is to be cut off from his people. That is God's covenant people. And if you think about it, in the same way that circumcision depicts, right, the the cutting of flesh, the cutting off of flesh, uncircumcision for any male in Abraham's offspring, it, it leads to the cutting off of that person from God's covenant people. That's the picture there. The breaking of the covenant is... 
deathly and doomful consequence for anyone who doesn't keep it, right? So we've seen God's part in this covenant going back um, and how Abraham is to keep it himself. And that's where we end today in our passage. And we saw Abraham's part here to keep it, to walk before God blamelessly with male offspring being circumcised as a sign of the covenant, both national and international. And without design, God's covenant people are, uh, people in God's covenant, sorry, will be cut off. So the question for us today here is, what is our part in this? We've seen God's part and Abraham's part and his offspring. So what is our part here today in this? Now some of you might be singing in your head, Father Abraham and Manny Seth. Sing it with me. I'm kidding. We need to understand before we do that that we're so small in comparison to such a big covenant that God made with Abraham over 4,000 years ago. And again, I hope you've noticed how God's promises kept getting bigger and bigger, right? And including more and more people from chapters 12, chapters 15, it doesn't stop becoming bigger. Abraham receives eventually later on, he receives his offspring in Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob called Israel, and they become a nation. And Joshua leads this nation into the promised land, circumcising them on the way, Joshua chapter 4 to make sure, uh, chapter 5, sorry, to make sure that they have the sign of the covenant. They're eventually led by kings, leads up to uh, King David, right? Throughout their generations, God remained faithful to his covenant. God was a faithful covenant partner. Yet Abraham's offspring, God's people, much like Abraham, remained unfaithful. Far from blameless, they kept breaking the covenant, as we see time and time again in the Old Testament, right? They kept breaking the covenant rather than keeping it. So how does God respond? The answer is by being faithful. By being faithful and sending the offspring of Abraham, as the start of the New Testament tells us, right? Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of who? Abraham. Thus, the covenant is confirmed by Christ's coming. Here's the first observation in this part that we see. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham who blessed the nations with the gospel, as we find in Galatians 3, in turning the nations from their wickedness, as Acts 3 specifies, that blessing. But how does Jesus do this? By becoming a curse for them. And fulfilling Genesis 15, when God walked between those cut up animal pieces alone to take the curse upon himself because he knew that Abraham and his offspring will break the covenant time and time again. Yet here's Jesus who fulfills this fully 
and perfectly. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, circumcised on the eighth day, Luke 2.21, the one who put off the body of the flesh through his death, Colossians 2 tells us that, and enabled human hearts to be truly circumcised. And for those people to be brought into a covenant relationship with their God. Even in the Old Testament, it was clear that physical circumcision wasn't the problem. It was the uncircumcised heart. And here, Jesus enables human hearts to be truly circumcised. Jesus, the faithful covenant partner who is tempted in every way, right, as we're told in Hebrews 4, to sin yet never did, to break the covenant but never did. He walked before his father blamelessly all the way as he walked up to that mountain to die for those who have broken God's covenant time and time again, including sinners like you and I today. So what is our part in this big covenant with Abraham? Well, I suggest we respond like Zechariah did when he prophesied in Luke chapter 1 about God confirming his covenant with Abraham by Christ's coming. Let me read it for you here. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Look at that communal language there. For us in the house of his servant, King David, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, namely Abraham, to remember his holy covenant. And here he specifies the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham to grant us that we, now being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, get this, before him in all our days. I want to emphasize those words, in holiness and righteousness before him. That's our last observation here today. When we walk out of this building to go home today, we need to remember from Genesis chapter 17 that we're commanded to keep God's covenant as the offspring of Abraham to walk before God blamelessly now and only in Christ Jesus. Sealed by baptism as a sign of the covenant between God and us as his people. I was thinking of different ways to land this and I was struggling, what's a specific point here? And actually it just draws us as a small, uh, yet uh, Christ makes that uh, big because it's for us. This covenant is for you and I today as offspring of Abraham through Christ, in Christ. And here, as Luke 1 says, serve him without fear in holiness and might I add from Genesis 17 walking in holiness and righteousness before him all our days until that day when we're truly home right truly walking before God as it was in Genesis 1 and 2 
when we're truly walking home before God blamelessly with a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And here it is. And God himself will be with them as their God. In the same words that God promised Abraham, I'll be God to you and to them and I will be their God. This covenant is for you and I today. It's for us. And we can only praise Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, for that. And now we can think of and sing, Father Abraham. We're not going to close with that specific song today, but we're going to praise the Lord, right? This is a big covenant, and we're, we're part of something big, so I hope this mobilizes us together, okay, uh, to, to have a big approach to the gospel, to have a big approach and, and, and a big reverence and serving our big God without fear, walking in holiness and righteousness before him. It's a beautiful picture. I long for the day, I hope as you all do, to walk before God, truly blameless, and he will be our God. So we're gonna come now with praises before him. We're gonna sing the song, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, as God has named himself in chapter 17. We're gonna let the amen sound from his people again and again and again, because that's exactly what we're gonna do as the people of God. And let's go from here today, walking before God, blamelessly in Christ as his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises to Abraham years and years ago. Yet now we hear and are reminded and are encouraged. We know that Jesus Christ, the true offspring of Abraham, who truly walked blameless before you, God. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin, became a curse for us so that in him and in him alone might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for this covenant that is everlasting. And I pray, Lord, that we can walk blamelessly before you in Christ. Lord, though we stumble, though we are unfaithful as covenant partners, we trust in Christ alone, who is a faithful covenant partner, and we thank you for Jesus Christ, for sending your Son for us here today. Help us to walk out of here and walk blamelessly before you. In Jesus Christ, in his name, amen. Worship team. Thank you.